Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. You know, for me, it, um, it, it doesn't matter, you know, if I'm in big law or work in a major consulting firm or go to an Ivy League school, I've got a set of issues that I'm passionate about that kind of are important to me and my soul that give my life meaning and purpose. And, um, and I got to, you know, commit myself to moving the ball up the field on those issues, um, regardless of where I'm at. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is George Fothery, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. George is a, a real estate partner at a major law firm in Los Angeles called Sidley. Um, he attended Harvard undergrad uh, and before going to law school was named to the top 25 minority entrepreneurs. Um, uh, George received his JD at Loyola Law School um, in 2020, was named uh, Attorney of the Year by uh, the Daily Journal for work representing the Getty Trust, acquiring the Ebony and Jet photographs that we've all um, heard about. Um, and ha he has been selected for inclusion in chambers as well as a, as a top lawyer in, in his field. Um, a lot of you uh, know about something major that George has done recently, which is to get uh, Bruce Beach back for the Black family from whom it was taken um, probably decades ago. And um, we uh, are applaud that. We'll spend just a little time talking about that. But more importantly, George is a father, friend, and an awesome guy. So let's jump right in. I'd like to start um, by giving folks an idea of your origination story, how, you know, how it all started and to get where you are and where you're from and maybe a little idea of your upbringing, if you don't mind. Sure, sure, Merle, happy to talk about that. So my folks met at uh, UC Irvine. Um, uh, I think my my father, who's who's black, was one of the first uh, black classes at UC Irvine. My mother, who's white, uh, uh, transferred there from a uh, uh, and uh, from a Christian college. Um, they met, um, and my mom got pregnant. They both dropped out of college. Um, wow! And, and they had me. Um, they had two other children, and when I was about four and a half. Uh, my sister was two and my baby brother was one. My, my dad left. Oh. Um, and so I was raised by a uh, single mom, three kids. I grew up in a town called Chino, Chino, California. It's about an hour southeast of Los Angeles. Uh, it's part of San Bernardino County or, or the Inland Empire. Um, and when I was growing up in Chino, it was, um, you know, there were more cows than people in Chino. There were really only two things 
of note in our town. It was uh, one of the largest state prisons in California is the California Institute for Men, and that's in Chino. And the other thing were, were dairy farms. So growing up, most of the most of the people I knew, their dads either you know were dairy farmers or, or prison guards. So it was, um, I don't know, I'd say not quite middle class, definitely a working class uh, upbringing in Chino. I went to you know public school, uh, K through 12, uh, graduated from Chino High School. Um, and I, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was a motivated young person. Um, as early as I could remember, um, I signed up for everything. I wanted to be involved in everything. I volunteered a lot. I was an altar boy. I was in 4-H. I was school president. I was captain of the uh, varsity soccer team. Wow. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I umpired little league. I worked at a restaurant. Like I've always, you know, I, I've probably always been terrified of having, of having free time or idle time. So, um, why do you think that. you might end up at the prison if you had idle time? <laughs> probably, probably. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, that's where I grew up. Interesting. And so, you know, you mentioned Chino, I, uh, uh, most people probably know Chino from from Snoop, right? From his yeah. that, that Snoop's uh, uh, raps about Chino. Yeah, um, he's but, got a he's got a line. He says, "I'm on my way to Chino, rolling in the gray goose, talking about the prison bus heading out there." So, but now, shoot, Snoop now lives in the hills, Chino Hills, which is like you know that's the fancy that's fancy Chino, Chino Hills. But when we were growing up, Chino Hills didn't exist. It was just the kind of hills over there. Um, Interesting. Interesting. Okay. And so, so yeah, one of my questions usually is what makes you unique? It's, it sounds like uh, that idea that you always had to be busy and always had to, is, is that one of the things that you feel makes you unique? What else, what else do you think makes you unique? So, you know, look, I think I'm really fortunate. Um, I've managed to you know, somewhat successfully marry my passion for, you know, look, my, you know, I get a passion for, you know, for black people. I love, right. black people. I, love I love black culture. I love kind of uplifting. I love black excellence. I love black self-determination and, and socioeconomic uh, advancement. And I've been able to marry that like passion with my professional training and experience, uh, which you know, I started off professionally. I was a a, a strategy consultant for uh, for Booz Allen and then McKinsey and Company. Uh, you alluded to I got experience as an entrepreneur. I worked uh, I worked for several years as a nonprofit executive working in public education reform, and now for the past sixteen years, I've been uh, a corporate attorney, and so. Collectively, those experience have experiences have have helped me develop a set of skills um, that I've been again able to marry with my passion, um, and you know the the intersection of those two things I think gives me a real sense of purpose in my life, um, and it's something that I'm have immense gratitude for. And so, were were there very many black kids in Chino when you were growing up? I grew up mostly in, you know, like I said, kind of a lower working class white and Latino uh, neighborhood. Um, there were, you know, large kind of Mexican American population. My high school, um, 
you know, didn't have a, a lot of a lot of black kids. Um, uh, there were actually, you know, kind of uh, when I was going to high school at Chino High School, kind of pretty high racial tensions between the black kids and the and the Mexican kids. And I think, you know, basically everybody wanted to wanted to kick my butt because I, you know, I'm, I'm half black, but I spoke Spanish and look Mexican. And so it was hard for me to find kind of real, uh, you know, community there. And so that that wasn't a part of my life growing up in Chino. And, and I would say it wasn't really until I got into college that I started um, experiencing and really, uh, you know, celebrating that that part of my identity. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I and that I picked up on that because I, I can understand how that would be. It, it could be confusing um, being raised by a white mom in a in a Hispanic neighborhood and and to ultimately end up be, having a passion for black folks. It's, it's like a almost a full circle thing for you. I, I think that's right. So. You know, if that being said, so you all you, you've already kind of touched on, you know, stereotypes, right? Because of your your mixed heritage and and your uh, your desire to and your ability to speak languages and all that. Um, what kind of stereotypes do you feel people have made about you and were they right or wrong? <laughs> you know, I this is something that I. I didn't realize for a long time, and I remember one time after a, uh, one time after a, I think it was a work dinner, and I got in the car, and my wife looked at me, and she said, um, she said, you know, you gotta, you gotta let people know kind of where you're from. You gotta let people know you're from Chino because I think people see and experience you now, and they think that you were, you know. Kind of you know born into this and that this silver was like, spoon yeah that this was like a predestined outcome that you are now a partner at a top law firm and have this great practice and she goes i don't think people appreciate how hard you've had to work and hustle you know she said you know you know i got yeah you know, i got a couple nice suits and um you know some fancy reading glasses and i think people have assumptions <laughs> about you know and you work you know you you go to you go to an ivy league school and you work at a big firm and I think people do develop, um, you know, have assumptions on on how you how you came up, and um, and you know, and I think for me, um, but most of the time those assumptions are are erroneous. Um, you know, I you know, like I said, I didn't I didn't know my my father growing up. Um, you know, uh, neither of my parents finished uh, finished college. You know, I was the first uh, first in my family to to go to college. I was the first you know, kid in my high school to go to Harvard. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I've, you know, basically since I was probably, you know, nine or 10 years old, like I've, I've worked and hustled every day of my life. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't know, I don't know if that always comes across. And, and I, I totally get that. And, and um, I've, I've had a similar situation, although, although both my parents were together and, and they were school teachers, we lived in Compton because they taught in the Compton school district. And so they felt like, you know, you, you live where you teach. And I went to, to Dominguez High School um, and it was a rough ex experience. And, and I've actually, so I've, I've lived both sides of this life. And, and, and I, for one, I, I agree with your wife. I, I I do not miss any opportunity to tell people that I'm from Compton because one, I'm proud of it, but two, it does inform, you know, a lot about 
you know, the experience and the journey. Yeah, and what you, what you had to go through to get here. I, I'll share, Miro, I don't, I don't talk about this a lot, but I'll share something like, so I've got like the oldest memory I've got of my father, you know, he had, he had left, you know, he left my mom with, with three kids when, when we were all young. I do have a memory of being in kindergarten or maybe first grade and him um, and, and getting called to the office with, uh, and, and my, my siblings there were at the same school, but in the preschool. And I remember getting called to the office and, and my dad was in the office and they said, um, they said, you, you know, do you know this man? I said, yeah, I said, that's my, that's my dad. Cause he, you know, I guess my mom had asked him to, you know, to, to kind of pick us up or he was going to check us out to school, but he wasn't known to the school. Right. So I remember they, they took the word of a five-year-old <laughs> to, to hand over myself and my, you know, like I said, my, my three-year-old sister and probably two-year-old brother. And we go outside the school and he didn't, he didn't have a car. Um, and so he had a shopping cart from like the grocery store around the corner that he had grabbed a shopping cart because that's how he was going to like transport the three of us to get on the bus. I remember an argument with him and the bus driver where the bus driver wouldn't let him put the shopping cart on, on the bus. And so he was saying, well, how am I supposed to get these kids? Um, and I remember him trying to take us to grab something to eat at like a fast food restaurant and not having enough money to like buy, you know, to like kind of pay for, you know, pay for, wow. for all of us. So it's like, um, th- you know, that's my, that's really my, my earliest memory. And I think that, you know, I think that, that, like th- that image and that, you know, kind of being in that situation, I think it's, it's motivated me and I think it drives me. Right. I mean, I, I, I can, I can't see how it wouldn't, I mean, but you know, it could, it, it could either, things can go either way. I mean, what that did for you is, is create your resilience, right? You probably said at the time, I'm not going to be that. Um, and you and you stuck to it. You could have just as easily just felt defeated. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I remember um, I remember showing up in in college um, and and look, you know, college was a shock for me for a bunch of reasons. Like I had never I had never been to a city. Right. I wow. mean, she, knows, she knows more, you know, more farm than than streets. Um, I think I had been on a bus once to Los Angeles to visit like the La Brea Tar Pits or something, but I had never <laughs> been to a city. So you show up in Cambridge. It's a real city. There's taxis and a subway and buildings. And so that was disorienting. I had never, you know, never experienced weather like that. So that was kind of a shock. Right. The racial kind of dynamics at at Harvard are, are, I think, you know, kind of complicated to figure out how to navigate, you know, to say the least. But more than all of those, the thing that was most shocking to me was was the wealth. Mm-hmm. I had never been around anybody that had that kind of money. And I remember one of the very first conversations I had with one of my one of my new classmates. We were we actually we were we shared a taxi from the airport to to campus together. And this was a you know, very well kind of put together uh, young woman, you know, kind of hair and, and bag and dress and speech and everything. And I remember she spoke the whole taxi ride uh, to the square. And when we finally got out, she looked at me, she said, you know, she said, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I've been, I've been talking this whole time. I haven't asked you anything about yourself. She goes, tell me, where does your family summer? <laughs> that was her. That was her question to me. And I was like, I was like, huh? like I'd never heard the word summer used as a verb, 
right? And so I was like, you know, the Chino YMCA, like, what are you talking about? So that all of those things took a lot to, you know, get adjusted to. Wow, but you clearly adjusted to it. At what point did you decide to go to law school? So let's see, I, um, you know, I took, I took a bunch of time off between undergrad and law school. Um, like I said, I worked as a consultant. Um, uh, we started a family, and I think, I think you know this, Merle, I think we've talked about this, but when, when our first son was born, when he was an infant, he developed, developed a very rare neurological disorder where yes. he basically would have, you know, nonstop seizures. Um, sometimes he'd have, you know, 180 to 200 seizures a day. As a result, we ended up spending a bunch of time in, uh, in the hospital, um, which made it hard for me to continue my work as a consultant. I think it made it hard, you know, both in terms of that lifestyle, like I was, I'd get on a plane Sunday night and fly back into town on Thursday or Friday. So I think I had to be around and in town. But look, I, you know, also if I'm honest with myself, I think it wasn't just the lifestyle. I think when you have some, you know, some crisis like that in your life, mm -hmm. it also really forced me to evaluate how I was using my, you know, my time and my talents professionally. And with whom, right? And, and, and with whom and for what? Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I decided to, uh, to pivot and I left the private sector and I went to go work in public education reform. And why public education reform? Because, you know, two, two things. One, um, that to me, that was a key to kind of help help drive my passion that I have for, for uplifting black people. And I, and I saw how, how a bunch of black folks get, get shortchanged by the public education system. And then if I'm honest, like public education is the only thing that got me out of Chino. Yeah. Right? I had a handful of super strong dedicated, motivated public school teachers who saw something in me and pushed me and encouraged me. And that's what let me get out of there. Um, and so I went to work in public education reform. And at the same time, I was leaving the private sector to go do that. I thought, you know, I really ought to get some degree just so that my, my development uh, continues. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I decided to go back to law school. Got it. Got it. And and you didn't consider moving, I mean, uh, staying on the East Coast where you like, I, you know, got to get back to L.A. Yeah, no, look, my my family's here and this is, you know, this is home for me. This is where I was comfortable. Um, and so I knew I always knew at some point I'd be back in L.A. And um, and as far as I was concerned, you know, sooner, sooner it was better than later. <laughs> right. Especially after a few of those winners. Right all day so why why real estate law i i know you, you you characterize yourself as a corporate lawyer um which i understand is also you know it's deals and transactions but specifically how did you end up in real estate yeah yeah great great question um and look um it was really only recently um and when i say that you know i've been practicing law for 16 years now and i think merle it was really only in the last six months um, and really in connection with, you know, with some of the pro bono work I was doing that I think we're going to talk about right. that, um, that finally made me understand why I had become a real estate attorney. So, so look, when I, you know, I went, I went to law school and, and I went to law school at night. So I worked full time during the day, helping to run the nonprofit. I would leave the office at about 545, get to class from six. I took class from 
six to 10, four nights a week and would study on the weekend. So it's a four year program. And when I, um, you know, and I, I never had any intention of, of going into a big firm, right? I was very passionate about the work I was doing. And probably a year before graduation, uh, I got some advice from the Dean of the law school. He asked me what I was gonna do after graduation. And I, I told him, I said, I'm, I'm doing it. You know, I'm trying to, you know, create, um, you know, better educational opportunities for black and brown kids. Mm-hmm. And, and what he said is he said, look, he said, that's fantastic. Um, but, you know, he said, if you don't go to a firm, at least for a couple of years, like uh, it, it's really, you know, folks really don't take you seriously. seriously. With mm-hmm. your so he really, he really encouraged me and, and yeah, look, and I trusted his opinion. And so, you know, I, I asked him, I said, well, where do you think I should go? And he goes, he goes, that's easy. Um, if you only want to do it for two years, go to Skadden because two years at Skadden is like three or four years anywhere else. And, um, and so that's where I went. And when I came in, I, I knew I wanted to do litigation. Um, and I knew I wanted to do litigation because that's really the only thing that I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, my best friend from college was a litigator. Kind of that's what they, that's what they teach you when you're in law school is, you know, it's cases and litigation. And so I came out and, you know, that's all I wanted to do. My very first litigation assignment involved a, a real estate question. And the litigator who gave me the assignment, they said, look, before you start doing the research, why don't you go talk to this partner who's in the real estate group? He may have some information that, that kind of helps you focus the research. And so I remember going upstairs and meeting this guy and it was, it was love at first sight, right? This was somebody who had like my same energy my same passion for you know progressive politics and social justice and and I think what struck me was look if I'm going to do this work and I'm going to work this hard like I want to do it with somebody I love I want to do it with somebody who who I can see myself being when when you know when I get there and so I became a real estate attorney like wow. really for no really for no reason other than I felt like a strong connection with this guy and honestly Mur wasn't until I got involved with with the Bruce's Beach case that I remember you know, getting home one night and, and kind of sitting down and it just struck me. And it finally said, like, George, this this is why you became a real estate attorney. Well, because um, it all came together, right? It all culminated in that that experience. It, that's exactly right. And and look, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, like, that's 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 really how I feel about my career. I feel like my my career, and I want to be clear, it's it didn't accidentally come together. It didn't coincidentally come together. Like I've been intentional and deliberate about, um, you know, wanting to be an excellent, uh, you know, transactional corporate real estate attorney, um, with the idea of like developing those skills and and reaching a level of of excellence to be able to use that and to use the firm platform and the network and the intellectual capital to really support, you know, issues, causes, organizations, movements that are important to me and my family. And you've been you've been fortunate that you've been at firms that have allowed you uh, to do that as well. Absolutely. So how did how did you how do you find these things? Like, for example, you know, if, you know, I, I I alluded to the Ebony and Jet photographs. I mean, that's a big deal. And then to to go from that, I'm sure there are some cool things in between. And then the you know the Bruce's Beach uh, pro bono work 
which is, is, I mean, groundbreaking, you know, but let me, well, first tell me how you find these opportunities. And then I have another question for you. You know, you know look, I mean, I, I think it goes back to the point I was trying to make about intentionality. I mean, you hear people say, you know, right place at the right time. And that's, you know, that's definitely true. I've been at the right place at the right time, but I've also been there with the right skills, with the right experience, with the right intentionality and passion. And so, and so again, um, you know, I do think some of this is, is the universe lining up around me. Um, mm -hmm. But I also think, you know, like you said, I've been, I've been blessed and fortunate to be at firms and companies that have not just indulged my passion for issues related to racial justice and giving back and, and equality, um, but have encouraged, supported and celebrated it. So I think it's, you know, right place at the right time with the, you know, with the right skills and the right intention. Okay, so tell us a little bit. We won't talk all because I'm sure you've got to be, you know, exhausted uh, about being interviewed about Bruce Beach, and that's not what this interview is about. But you know, tell our audience a little bit about what that is. I my my inter my impression of it is that it's probably the first rep true reparations for Black folks in the U.S., which you know. I applaud you. Thank you so much for doing that. But give us some background on that and kind of tell us a little bit about the the process and where it ended, how it started and where it ended. Sure. So so just, you know, super quickly for folks who aren't familiar with the story, Willa and Charles Bruce were an entrepreneurial black couple who in 1912 bought a parcel of, of really beachfront property in what is now the city of Manhattan Beach. Um, they started. They started with with just a stand that you could buy a sandwich and a soda, and then they added a tent uh, and rented bathing suits. Where basically black people from all over LA County would would hop on the the red line, hop on the train, uh, come to their spot, you know, change, buy a sandwich, and use and enjoy the beach. It was very popular. It was very successful, and and it grew. And Willa and Charles ended up buying another parcel. They ended up building a two story building. And um, and as a result, um, this really became you know this spot, right? It's kind of like you know, kind of like we think of maybe you know Martha's Vineyard now or the Inkwell, right? Club. Like this was the spot. Um, of course, not everybody was as excited as as you and I, you know, would be about the success <laughs> of the resort. And what you had was um, some of the some of the community members in Manhattan Beach starting to make noise about what they referred to as the Negro invasion. Um, all these black people coming into town using the beach and I'll tell you Merle one of the things that I, I learned when I was doing the research is it wasn't just that there were black people coming to Manhattan Beach using the beach it was that some of the people that were coming were were wealthy black people they would show up and they'd have a car and they'd have a, a driver and they would have their trunks of clothes and and they ended up buying real estate and building homes. And I think, I think it's that that really caused kind of the, you know, that 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 led to the agitation. So, anyways, fast forward, wow. the, the white neighbors engaged in a, a series of harassments, and um, you know, they would slash the tires, they put up kind of fences so you kind of get to the beach. At one point, somebody tried to shove a mattress under the building and set it on fire. They burned a cross across the street, and even with all that, the resort continued to grow in popularity. Right. So, so finally, around the 1920s, 
um, there was a real estate agent who hatched a scheme to use eminent domain to take the property. Mm. And what they said was, we, we need to build a city park. Um, and, and it's crazy. You look at photographs of, of what, you know, what Manhattan Beach looked like at the time. And you've got Bruce's Beach, which is kind of there in the middle. And then all around, it's just sand. And it's right. a lot. And it's dirt. But of course, where did the park need to go? Right on Bruce's Beach. Right, on the, right, right where the building is. So, so, uh, so in 1924, uh, the property was turned over to the city. The city immediately demolished the building. Mm. And at the same hearing, the city passed a number of ordinances that made it illegal to, to set up a business on the beach without getting the city permit. They wanted to make sure that the Bruce's wouldn't just set up shop down the beach. So that happened almost 100 years ago. And how I got involved is I've got a good friend who had heard about my work uh, with Johnson Publishing Company and the Jet and Ebony Photography Archive. Mm-hmm. And she reached out to me. She said, hey, I'm going to send you an article. I want you to read the article. And then I'm going to come over and I want to talk to you about it. And she sent me an article uh, about what happened to the Bruce's uh, in the 1920s. And um, I remember reading it. And I remember becoming furious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's like, we all know this stuff happens. But in this case, like the racial motivation was so blatant. It was so... I think the other thing that struck me when I read this was, you know, this didn't happen in the deep South in the 1800s, right? This happened in Los Angeles County in 1924. Right. And so I remember reading the article, being very moved by it and thinking, I want to do something about this. This is something I want to be involved with. Um, I spent uh, the next several months researching different you know, legal strategies that, that maybe could be brought um, by the family descendants to recover the property. And I think came up with some very, you know, kind of creative and promising angles. But at the end of the day, um, here's what I was worried about. At the end of the day, I was worried about making contact with the family and getting their hopes up for something that I was not 100% sure I could deliver on. Right. And so I kind of I kind of sat tight. Um, Fast forward to May 2020, and George Floyd is murdered. Mm. And in the aftermath of his murder, which everyone around the world watched for eight minutes, um, there was a real, you know, a white height, uh, you know, a, a white hot light that was put on issues of racial injustice and racial equity. And it was, you know, in the aftermath of that, that uh, an amazing community organizer, Kavan Ward, started raising awareness about what had happened to the, the Bruce's. Eventually, the story made its way to Supervisor Janice Hahn, who made the courageous decision that the county should give the land back. Mm. Once I heard that, I had two reactions. <laughs> My first reaction was like, hallelujah. This is right. a thank goodness. My second reaction was, oh my gosh, um, this has got to be done exactly right. There's going to be a lot of people that don't want to see this happen. There's going to be a lot of people who try to stop this. There's going to be lawsuits. And and this has also got to be done exactly right because it's never been done before. And if we get it right, it can be a model. If we screw it up, people are gonna use it as an excuse to say, that's why we can't do this. That's why we can't engage in reparations. Right, well, you're setting precedent. 
That's exactly right. And so once I realized that this was going to happen and it had to be done exactly right, and I apologize that this is not, you know, this is not going to going to come off, uh, you know, in a modest way. <laughs> but what I thought was like, I'm the exact right person to do this. I have to be involved. Like my, and it, and it's at that moment that I I realized that this is something I've been preparing my entire life and I've been training for my entire professional career to be of service to this family in this kind of landmark event of returning real property to a black family from whom it had been wrongfully taken. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Don't make me cry. <laughs> oh cheers, my God. Cheers of, joy. cheers of joy. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, uh, for for our audience's purposes, is this considered reparations? Yeah, yeah, this is, you know, this is, to our knowledge, this is actually the first land reparation to uh, to African-Americans in this family, right? This is, or I'm sorry, in this country, the first land reparations. Um, I think there's been, you know, there's some evidence and experience of, of, of other types of reparative programs, uh, you know, uh, college scholarships and, um, you know, housing priority. But in terms of returning land that was wrongfully taken to, uh, to a black family, uh, as far as we know, this is the first time it's happened in the country. And our whole purpose of getting involved was to try to make sure that it's not the last. Wow. That that's amazing. And how how many family members? I mean, how do you track those people down? And and you know, how do you know that you got them all and all yeah. that? So you know, you had you had mentioned. I think you made the comment. You know, there's no precedent for this, and that's right. that's exactly right. And as lawyers, right, that's how we work. We work based on on you know litigation precedent, case precedent, deal precedent, and so this had never been done. And so this deal, this transaction, brought together. Um, a diverse set of legal issues and challenges that had never been, you know, kind of put in a crucible like this before. And so we really did not have a playbook. Um, I've never, you know, look, I've worked on a lot of complex uh, transactions, corporate transactions, real estate transactions, cultural transactions, um, but nothing that can bind the elements here. One of the first things I did when I got hired here is I hired a genealogist to run a family tree, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that we were representing the right folks and that we didn't spend, you know, six, 12 months negotiating a deal and structuring this. And at the last minute, somebody would show up and say, Hey, wait a minute, I'm a, a family. Exactly. And I want it right. So we hired, you know, like a, a well-known genealogist to kind of do the family tree. This case for me involved um, drafting legislation, right? Had never done that before, but we worked with, uh, with state Senator Mark, uh, I'm sorry, Stephen Bradford's office, who had introduced a bill to uh, that would enable the county to return the property. And we had to do a, a bunch of legal research to think about, you know, how somebody going to attack this if they bring a lawsuit. What are they going to say? Right. How do we need to strengthen the language in this bill to to show the state legislature's intent? Um, probably one of the most complicated aspects of this uh, are the tax implications. Right. Again, this had never happened before. Our government's never given real property back to, to black people who lost it um, in violation of their civil and human rights 100 years ago. And so how's that treated uh, for tax purposes? Do they have to pay income taxes? We're still, we're still negotiating those issues. 
Um, you know, there were uh, obviously real estate issues. How do you get a title insurance policy? How do you get a title insurance company to get comfortable providing an owner's title policy for a piece of land that, you know, was taken via eminent domain, is subject to litigation, there may right. be other defendants. So, um, you know, our team, and, and I look, I do want to be clear, I had the honor and the privilege of leading the team, um, but we had a team of, you know, 20 attorneys from around the country who were dedicating their pro bono time to work on this and get this right. And so, um, you know, our team dealt with, with, uh, with numerous issues that were complex and nuanced in and of themselves. And then when combined in this, you know, in this, uh, you know, in this way, it, it's really something that's never been dealt with before. And I think throughout the process, we tried to stay keenly focused on that. We wanted to make sure that, um, even if we knew what the answer would be or knew what it should be, we wanted to go through the processes so that um, other folks could use this and follow it as a model. We were we were kind of creating a, a playbook as we went. Wow. So <laughs> back to I mean that that is like almost fairy tale stuff. It's the kind of stuff that you know people dream of going to law school for and having. Uh, you, you know, having happened in their life and you, you've you actually lived it and, and thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my, my heart for doing that. So how, how would you encourage uh, other uh, associate, you know, associates of color, you know, younger folks getting into big law um, who, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. You know, how do you encourage them and mentor them to to make it through to partner? You know, look, so for me, it, it starts, you know, it starts with with this idea of professional excellence. Um, you know, I had a I had a mentor. <laughs> I had a mentor who, you know, he reminded me like, you know, we've got to we've got to be twice as good. Right. right. We got to be the first ones in the last ones out. Um, you know, it's funny. He what he used to say is he's like, I got I got good news and bad news. Um, the bad news is it's true what they say. You've got to be twice as good as the other guys. He goes, look, the good news is it's not that hard because they're not all that good. Um, but um, not pretty, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but 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 look, for me, it really starts and stops with professional excellence. Um, we've got to show up, and we've got to uh, work harder. We've got to, you know, be better. Um, we're starting from maybe not in the same spot, so we've got further to go. And I think, I think a lot of us talk about that—that that we've got to work harder, we've got to be better. I think what I want to add to that is, we also need to allow ourselves the grace when we fall short of that, right? When we don't quite hit that expe expectation, when we're, when we're not performing, um, you know, to the best of our capabilities, we've got to we've got to give ourselves grace, and we've got to allow ourselves to learn from those moments and kind of recoup and and take another take another swing. So for me, it really starts with professional excellence. Um, I've got you know for the things that I'm passionate about, for the issues that I want to move the needle on, I've got an obligation to get amazing experience and training so that I can be the best in delivering those solutions. So it starts with excellence, professional excellence. And then the other piece um, is, and this is, you know, this is why I'm excited to talk on, on this podcast is it's about authenticity. Yep. Right. And it's about being true to yourself and like, you know, no matter how I slice it, um, you know, I can't avoid the fact that, 
right? That I grew up in Chino, California. I'm a kid from Chino, and that's you know, and that shaped me uh, in terms of who I am, and it shaped me in terms of you know who, who I'm always going to be, and the kind of values that I developed through the experiences I had there are the values that that guide and shape my decisions, and so the authenticity is. Um, you know, for me, it, um, it it doesn't matter, you know, if I'm in big law or work in a major consulting firm or go to an Ivy League school, I've got a set of issues that I'm passionate about that kind of are important to me and my soul that give my life meaning and purpose. And, um, and I got to, you know, commit myself to moving the ball up the field on those issues, um, regardless of where I'm at. Right. And, and I think you know the way it comes together in my mind is it's right it, it's symbiotic it's complementary. Um, I'm going to do amazing work uh, on the real estate and corporate and transactional paying client side to you know develop my network, build my reputation, develop skills, lift my standing within the firm, um, to be able then to use all of those those assets and that goodwill and that equity to advance the issues that are important to me and my family. Here, here. Um, and, and, you know, these are, are tremendously stressful times. You know, it's very stressful times for everyone. I mean, you, to me, exemplify, you know, someone who has had to manage, you know, stress throughout your life and your career. You know, you talked you talked a little bit about your son's health issues. You know, you're, you're a great husband and a great father. And, and, you know, what, what, words of encouragement or or advice can you give to folks who find themselves just like overwhelmed uh, with stress right now? Gosh, you know, I had, um, I had this talk with my with my kid. I've got a 16 year old kid um, and they're you know, they're they're you know, that's a that's a rough age. That's a rough time for them. They're they're dealing with a bunch of stuff that like we didn't have to deal with when we yep. were in high school. So it's a stressful time for them. And I think it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, be positive and it's hard to be happy and it's hard to always celebrate and be, you know, and be in a great mood. And so the talk that I recently had with them was like, I think one of the most rebellious and courageous uh, acts and actions that we can have as, as black people is, is joy. Yeah, like, right. Is, is celebration and i think it's like and it's in our dna right you look yeah you look just look historically like what our ancestors what they dealt with and and they they were they were a burdened people um but they were a joyful people and so um you know you, you know you you said this you know this this line of work is not it's not for the for the faint at heart mm -hmm. um but i think what what motivates me is that idea of um, of joy as an expression, a joy as a radical expression of blackness, yeah. right? And, and really kind of like, like the expression of blackness as its highest form is joy kind of notwithstanding, you know, how much we've got to hustle, how much, you know, the, the cards aren't dealt, um, you know, to the right hands for us. And so that's, you know, that's a, a theme that I try to keep and I, I can't say I always keep it, but I try to keep it in the, in the front of mind. Well, and, and it's interesting you say that because all through the pandemic, what I've been telling people is I'm, I'm you know, seeking joy. I, I, I am just trying to hang on to something 
that I can find joyful. And, you know, part of it for me is, um, you know, like color, like people, people comment every time I, I show up on a video or in person someplace, somebody comments on how colorful my yeah. outfit is or something. Well, that goes to, you know, my, something that I'm sure I inherited, you know, through my, my, uh, uh, pat through past people, but it's just something that I do and it makes me happy. Yeah. It's, you know, look, we, we talked during the pandemic and especially after, you know, the events in May, 2020, we talked a lot about self-care, about black self-care. And for me, right. Joy is, is a critical ingredient in, in my self-care. Um, and so, um, so look, I try to, you know, I try to be around people I love. I try to see friends. I try to kind of find beauty in, in art and music and food. Um, you know, and, and I really, I try to experience and express and, and to the extent that I'm capable, be a source of joy uh, to others in my life. So George, I, I guess we're kind of, I hate to say this, but we're at the end of, of our time. I've so enjoyed um, hearing your story uh, and, and talking with you. Do you want to give us like one final a uh, tidbit, one final uh, uh, thought about uh, encouraging folks to embrace their authenticity um, and, you know, make it a good one. <laughs> you know, look, for me, it's just been, it, it, it's not, don't let people force you into a false decision of having to choose between like your professional excellence or what you're passionate about in your personal life, right? Like that's a that's a false choice. Yeah. Um, I, I want to do both. And not only do I want to do both, I want to use one to make the other one better. And I want to use the other one to make the first one better. And so, you know, what I, I guess what I want to say is, is, uh, you know, is, is go get it all, right? Go get it all. Um, excellence, authenticity, intentionality. When you can bring those things together, in my life, it's given me, just the greatest sense of purpose, um, you know, which is, you know, which is what I hope for folks. Thank you so much. Thank you, George, for My being pleasure. here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here to BS with me today. And thanks to everyone for listening. Until And until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.